This is episode number 28. Live the story you want to tell with Mark Y. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohi, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. A seminar where you'll have a chance to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar transformation that you are. A seminar where you will hear from speakers from all over the country, including Jim Bricker, Anne Heffron, Leslie Johnson, Adele Harris, Joshua Banks, Peter Stropel, and myself included. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Now, let's get back to our guests. It all suddenly made sense, he said. A moment that clearly defined what purpose meant to me was when I first started teaching. I don't mean to teach people skills, but to get people to believe in themselves. Self-belief, a concept that gives you confidence to overcome any obstacle that's put in front of you. Self-belief, a concept that develops from understanding your own abilities. Without further ado, please welcome Mark Gwai. Mark, welcome to the show. And what I'd like you to do, and I'm going to start off this episode a little bit differently from what, what I have in the past, and that is I would like you to ask um, a question, and that question being, what is something that you've recently Googled about yourself that's telling about you? Interesting. That's a very good question. Well, thank you, Oleg, for that. Um, oof. Wow. Well, I will say... Okay, so recently, uh, now you're specifically about me, like what I've inter- what I've mm-hmm. Googled about me, right? My Google resume, as I used to tell my students. So I recently Googled, I was, someone was asking about, we were talking about body fat percentage and the ketosis diet, and I used to be a competitive triathlete. So I Googled an image of me when I used to race <laughs> for a highly competitive team in New York City called Full Throttle Endurance. And it's a picture of me when I'm about 157 pounds, I think, maybe around there. I had about 3% body fat, uh, which is very low. That's impressive. And it, it's, it is impressive. It's, it's dangerously low, though. So I've learned you can't keep it. For any of my athletes that are listening, you know that you can't really keep that outside of the competitive zone. So you have to go back to like 5 to 7 sometimes 9% body fat for training. Mm-hmm. But it's this picture of me where I'm racing in Oklahoma City for an Olympic triathlon. And I'm just gaunt and I'm just this tall, lanky guy in the zone. And I looked at it and it's like, who is that guy? Like I, I'm still, I'm still as driven, but there's no way I'm going to be spending 20 hours a week training for a triathlon anymore. I've completely shifted my values and my, my focus of what I, what I want to do in my life. So it was neat looking at that because I look at life that we live multiple multiple purposes, right? And we, uh, I dive in, I, I go, you know, go all in to what I'm focusing on at that moment. But then once that flame is gone, and once it no longer serves me or the people I wish to serve, then I step out. 
And so I look at that and I realize, wow, that was a really cool time in my life. That was neat. I'm done with that chapter though. And you know, I'm all about living the story I want to read. So I look at that moment and I go, okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm proud of that moment, but yeah, that was, that's over and done with. In the past. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Let it go. You bring up a good point regarding purpose. It's something that I guess I was fortunate enough to find through my own personal experience. But one of the things that I notice on a daily basis from uh, people that I'm either surrounded with and are lucky enough to call friends or family or um, strangers, and that is um, oftentimes purpose, I think, is put on a a pedestal. And I think it's often um, misdefined. And so I see a lot of people have these I guess you could say identity crisis in trying to figure out that purpose and align it with their passion. And Mm -hmm. so the question I have for you regarding your work and who you are, how can one identify their purpose? What does it mean to live with the purpose? That's a great, that's a great question. And, And it could be taken many different ways, right? So when I say this is your life on purpose, I mean, live it intentionally, Mm -hmm. right? And I, and the way I look at your purpose is first of all, uh, I believe your purpose is creating something and this can get very deeply spiritual, extremely quick. But <laughs> I think that, uh, we all have an innate purpose to create something that you and only you can create and offer to the world. And it's a blend of your story of who you are, your passions from the inside, and then what the world needs and the value that, you know, you're perceived to deliver. So the way I look at purpose is that it's in, in, at the intersection of the internal and the external, and it's what you're creating with that magic point. Interesting. So one thing that I like to share to people, though, is, in my opinion, and this is both through my experience and also through studying this a lot, is the idea of having one purpose can be extremely stressful because people could, and I did this for quite a long time, is I would sit there and go, hmm, what's my purpose? What am I doing? Is this the right purpose? And I would deliver this downward negative spiral of FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, am I doing the right thing? And Mm -hmm. I think something that stems from being adopted is this fear of time and this understanding that there's only so much time I have in this physical life as Mark Gwang. Mm-hmm. And so for so long I was stressed with, am I using my time effectively? And it was not helpful at all. I read a book called Grace and Grit by a gentleman named Ken Wilber, who is yeah very popular. And I didn't know of his work until I read Grace and Grit. And his wife, Treya, she there's a moment in the book and i i mean i encourage anyone to read it it's such a beautiful book for many different reasons but there's a moment in the book where treya she has cancer and she kind of comes to a point where she realizes that there's a likelihood that she's going to die and she had previously worried oh my goodness did i cause this cancer to come to my body which is kind of a new age philosophy this idea that your thinking can actually create disease which i think is bullshit to be honest but there's definitely a psychosomatic aspect but it's not psychogenetic it doesn't cause it and i could speak on that at another time if anyone wants to reach out to me (laughs) (laughs) but she comes to this point where she realizes the, the wisdom of being versus doing. And she's been so obsessed her whole life 
to define her purpose, her identity, her value on what she has done. Is she doing the right thing? Is this my purpose? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. To a stressful point. And she's real and she completely forgot about being that who she is, how she treats people, right? What she does with this body, with this mind, mm-hmm. that's just as valuable. And so she got to a point where she started to love herself and she focused less on, am I doing enough? And started asking herself, who am I being? So like in this conversation, you know, like you and I are speaking in my, what I'm working on and what I, to, to define that, that aspect of being is I'm working on being fully present with you. Mm-hmm. And when I'm with my wife, I'm being fully present with her. And I always think of the Maya Angelou quote, and I used to share this or think about this a lot too when I was teaching in New York. It's people will often forget what it is that you taught them, but they will never forget how you made them feel. I think I'm misquoting it, but the 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 the, the, the wisdom is, is still there, there right? Mm-hmm. The concept is there. So I love that when Treya came to that moment because she accepted self-love and she focused more so on how she treats people. And when she passed at her funeral and, and later on, Ken would bump into people and they would share these stories of how her name, formal name, former name was Terry. She, he would hear these stories of how she made people feel and she made people feel loved. She made people feel heard. She empowered people. She helped people just by being present. And I think we all have people that we have in our lives that do that, that we just want to be around because they just Mm -hmm. make us feel good. Right. And like, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what you're doing, but I love you. Like, thank you. Like you're just being around you is just so good. Right. So anyways, uh, that, that I think is my greatest lesson that I've learned as far as purpose goes is it's not just your purpose isn't just defined by what you do. It, it's defined by who you are. Mm. I think that's a very important point to note because it, it I mean, it, it shifts everything. It shifts um, impact. You know, one of the things that, especially in our society at the moment, there's so much focus on the numbers. Like your your impact in a way is defined by, you know, number of followers, number of likes, number of comments you get. But really, I think what it should be, and that is that one-on-one interaction, changing one life per day or per month or whatever it is, just focusing on that one particular moment instead of right. trying to deliver that value to everyone, which I think that's an equation for failure, and that is trying to please everyone. Definitely. And there's an aspect, too, of, of ego in that and, and negative ego, right? There's different versions of ego. Mm-hmm. But this idea of when I hear someone say I need more followers, I get it. On a business sense, yeah, there's a value, perce- value proposition there. I absolutely get it. But there's also an element of uh, imposter syndrome. It's am I actually good? You mm-hmm. know, like, do you, you know, someone might Validation. in their mind. Validation. Yeah, they might not even realize it, but they need, I don't know, 20,000 followers to actually feel like they're doing something well, right? And it all boils down to self-love, usually. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the time when everything shifted for you and you were able to, quote-unquote, find 
part of this larger purpose that you're trying to develop right now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I do think that we we do have a deep purpose inside of us, and I think it usually bear, bears down to very essential detail or very essential or sorry, gross uh, generalization. So like to love people, mm-hmm. to to realize God, to uh, to teach, right, to play different roles in this life, uh, if you believe in reincarnation, that is. But uh, for me. This journey started, I think, like most adopted children. I think it started right at birth, right? And so I, I recently wrote my story that talked about how I think adoption is a superpower. And I think the reason it's a superpower is because it starts a self-introspective journey that some people, unfortunately, never get to go on. Mm. And it's, I think it's absolutely beautiful. So for me... Was there an exact moment where I was able to like realize what my purpose is? I would say that the most pivotal moments in my life were, were, were two. It was when I first learned to meditate. And when I learned meditation, I got in touch with the self. And this is using Zen words here. But it's essentially the idea of recognizing the self from a state as the witness, where you sort of like, I guess you could say have an out-of-body experience. Out-of-body experience. Yeah, where you sort of look at the self and you realize, oh, wow, there's that mind that just kind of goes all over the place. And you're like, oh, that's kind of neat. Look at that. Look at that thing. Like, it wants water. It wants food. It it wants sex. It wants, like, whatever it is. It's like, it needs to be loved. Like, it's like, oh, look at that. That's so, that's so funny. And then, and then, and then you, you know, and then, and then you, you realize the, the greater self, right? The spiritual self, right? So I think that, Learning meditation was extremely pivotal in my life. But there was another moment that clearly defined what purpose means to me. And it was when I first started teaching. And I learned that at my core, I think my true purpose is to be a teacher. And I don't mean to teach people skills. Uh, I think it's, I think the real role of a teacher is to get people to believe in themselves and to get people to... Uh, I don't want to use the term level up, but that's kind of the, the phrase that I'm coming to at the moment. Because what I've learned in my life, and this is specifically through teaching, mm-hmm. is going again back to that Maya Angelou quote, is I had students who I worked my butt off to create these great lessons. And I don't think they really walked away understanding what I was trying to get them to do. But then I would get uh, an email back from them a year, two, three later, or a Facebook message or something like that. And they'll share these stories of where they're struggling in their life. And they'll say, you know, Mr. Gway, uh, I want I just wanted to reach out to you. And I'm looking, I'm doing some writing, and I'm realizing who are the people that helped me realize my greatness, who helped me realize the things that I can do, who pushed me to be a better version of myself. And I think of you. And I just wanted you to know that. And every time I read that, I'm like, <laughs> oh. and it's always, at a, it's always at a point where I needed to hear it, which oh. is so beautiful. It's always at a point where I'm like, what the it hell am I doing like right that, now? Yeah. Like, I'm like, what's going on? Like, am I, you know, like no matter how successful I get or whatever, I'm, there's always moments of imposter syndrome where I'm going like, what the <laughs> heck am I doing here? Right. And so that moment comes that I'm like, thank you. And they don't realize it. They just like, but I believe in what Carl Jung called synchronicity, which is that there's divine work at play, right? That these level of coincidences are actually really beautifully orchestrated events on the grander scheme. And so uh, 
And so anyways, yeah, like when I first, uh, it was a year after I started teaching and the first year of teaching is incredibly difficult. It's not worth any amount of money that someone will pay you. It's just, it's, it, it will, it and throws you in the fires of hell. It's amazing. What makes oh, it so it's difficult? Just, well, because uh, you, you, you know things in the mind, right? You know theory, you know what pedagogy is, which is the art of teaching or the philosophy of teaching. But that does not mean at all that you're prepared to actually, you know, jump into the war or you're actually ready to create something. And anyone that's ever learned something knows that you it, it all works in your head. But then once you actually try to put theory to practice, <laughs> by God, it's difficult. So teaching, I'll give you an example of why it was hard. I was my first year of teaching. I was 22. I had a student who was 20 turning 21. His father was a state trooper. The guy had a better beard than I did. His name was Brad. <laughs> super thick beard and I and we I remember joking about that with him and he was failing out of school and he was not doing well and uh, his father called me and I'm on the phone in the office and this the his father was a state trooper who's 55 years old and he's talking to me and he goes Mr. Gway can I just can I just ask for some fatherly advice here what do you suggest I do with Brad what do, what, what, what do you suggest that I do? Do I take away his phone? Do I kick him out? Do we, do we just let him do his thing? Whatever. And I sat there and I'm thinking, oh, this guy doesn't realize that I'm just a year older than his son right now. He probably thinks because a teacher is supposed to be older, right? Like we have teachers right. in our life. So when we think of teacher, we think of who yeah. we had as teachers. And there's always that assumption that they're older. When, gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's not at all. I was the, the same age essentially as a son. And I gave some advice that I think was good. I don't even remember what I said, but it, it was it was that moment where I realized, oh my goodness, as a teacher, I'm doing way more than just teaching English. I'm teaching life skills. I'm playing a father role. I'm I'm learning time management. I'm having to mature because by God, I'm only 22, but here I am <laughs> that you know that's delivering. I, I'm, I have a situation here where I think it's the most valuable thing in the world. I have someone's attention. And I have the ability to make or break this kid's life. I can say something that can make them feel stupid for the rest of their life. And we've all had teachers that have done that. Yeah. Or I could say something that that kid will think about 10 years later that will help them push through their next op obstacle. So it was this overwhelming emotional transformation that I had to go through within a year. And it's just hard. It's just it's a very difficult thing. And, and anyone who teaches knows that. And then, of course, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year gets a little bit easier. You learn as you go. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the that's the beauty of being human, right? Mm -hmm. There's a book I'm reading right now called Annette and the Butterfly. Have you read it? I have not. It's a great book. And she's talking, it's a neuroscience book. And the, the basic premise of it is the aspect of neuroplasticity. It's that we as humans, we like, do you ever do something that was really difficult at first? And then eventually it became automatic yeah, about every day. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's the beauty of living to me. Actually, that's living on purpose right there yeah. where you're at that moment, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, do one thing that scares you every day. Mm -hmm. So you're living on that edge that's pushing you. And all of a sudden, that thing that was scary is no longer scary. I love that. But uh, but yeah, the neuroplasticity element, I think, is beautiful because it's just it's this idea that we can constantly grow and evolve to where the things that once scared us, the things that were once difficult, one day they're going to become routine and boring and we're going to need to move on. And it's at those moments that's the hardest because as you get older, you don't want to look stupid. Mm -hmm. You don't want to you don't want to have to write with your left hand when you've spent 33 years <laughs> writing with your right. But it helps. Right. Absolutely. So, that's why quitting jobs is hard. That's why quitting relationships is hard. And by quitting relationships, I don't just mean 
romantic relationships, I mean friends too, friends that we know are not serving us, yeah. but it's so hard to quit those. So anyhow, I, that book's been changing my life, so I love that. I think those are some of the most difficult things to do when it comes to quitting relationships is um, friends and even you know family family members sometimes. Right. But at the same time, I am a firm believer that you have to make those decisions if those are the decisions that that will put you forward in doing whatever it is that you do. And so when I I constantly get this um, question from a lot of from some people I know, and that is. You know, here's the situation I'm at. Um, I don't want to do this because there's so much time that was spent with that particular person, so many experiences created. And then at the end of the day, I, I always just say, well, so if you put all those experiences, are they helping you move forward or are they stopping you? And then that's where I think the breakthrough happens for a lot of people is they, then they start to think, well, it helped me before, but it's not helping me now. And then they move into the now, which is that's an important part, I think, of just learning and growing as a being. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you, and that is uh, regarding adversity. How do you maintain the motivation? Well, could, I, could, I, could I actually just speak on something real quick? Absolutely. That you, so uh, I, I wanted to bring that back to to adoption as mm -hmm. well, because I think for me, what I learned and this has been this has been the lesson I've been learning in business, because. A good business does one thing really well. It helps people decide very quickly whether you like or you hate it. Hmm. And if you love or you hate it. You know, anyone that's trying to please everyone doesn't work. And so I think the thing that adoption taught me, uh, the, a, lesson, a hard lesson that I've had to learn is as an adoptee, I've, I wanted everyone to love me. I, always, I never, I, I was very non-confrontational. I avoided direct communication, any sort of awkward communication. I would just ignore it. And we see this a lot in this world now of ghosting, where apparently people are not responding to people's messages. It's a new verb I've just learned, ghosting. <laughs> and so anyhow, as an adopted child, I've learned that, yeah, my whole life, I didn't want anyone not to love me because, you know, it, it was this incredible fear of, of, of being abandoned again, right? It rejection. tapped into that whole mm -hmm. rejection, right? It was very visceral. So. It, it does. No, that's a very good point. And that's um, one of the things that I actually wanted to ask you was how did you find that courage to first share your story? Because one of the things that I'm learning throughout our work is that there's so much um, humility and embarrassment from some of the people. Shame. Um, shame, exactly. Because they think that um, the things that happen to them are their fault. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and, and it's not worth sharing those experiences because for so many different reasons. But what I'm curious to know, and this is this goes beyond adoption foster care, is that how do people find that courage to share who they are and the things that happen to them in order to help either themselves or to help other people? That's a great question. And I wish there was a simple answer for it. I think it's a combination of, of answers. So how do people find the courage? Immediately, I'm 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 brought to the idea of the people you keep around you. So, as animals, right? The humans are animals. Mm -hmm. I, my my background, by the way, is in anthropology, and and I think it's funny because I that's why I studied as an adopted <laughs> child. I'm like, who are these people? Like, what is this? What is this human body? This is weird. And I was just so fascinated at how how people define culture. But as animals, we our habitats like we define normal. Like normal is one of my favorite words. It's my 
it's my favorite word because I think it's the most often misused word Whatever that, that no one has. And it, yeah, what does that mean? Oh, this is normal. <laughs> By that you mean it's normal in the bubble that you're living right now. That's right. what you mean, right? Yep. And we and the world for, or the, or the word for that is worldview, right? We but worldviews are being busted every day now because people are finally stepping outside of their bubbles or in their social media bubbles and their you know and their bubbles in their world, and they're uh, they're realizing that oh. Normal for me is different for that person. My mother was over not too long ago, and I said, hey, Ma, do you want some tea? And she goes, uh, yeah, that sounds great. I said, okay, well, what kind do you want? Oh, just the normal kind. <laughs> I was like, my wife and I love love tea. Or, you know, So she goes, I go, so do you mean black tea or green tea? She's like, yeah, yeah, the normal one. I'm like, okay, I think you mean black tea. All right, sounds good. So I, I bring that back because I think it has a lot to do with stepping outside the bubble that you're in, right? And we are the sum of the five people that we keep around us. Mm -hmm. So get around people that are vulnerable like you and you see them step into power and you realize that it's an element of power. I think the thing though, that as I'm speaking is coming to mind, the thing that's given me the most courage is uh, growing in the relationship with my wife. So lately I've been very influenced by a gentleman named Dr. Robert Augustus Masters and in short, I'll try to summarize his theories, mm -hmm. but in short, basically, he believes that it's through relationships that we actually step into the greatest version of ourselves. And it's in those relationships that we become fully ourselves. We don't hide who we are. We slowly open up. We, we show our shadows of ourselves. And when the other person responds and they hold space for that and they love us because they actually... They love us despite of the shadows that we're showing. Mm -hmm. we, we grow deeper. And eventually you get to a place where you're just so yourself with the other person and vice versa that you're able to grow past beyond those shadows. And you touch this sense of love that is just absolutely beautiful. And the metaphor I use to describe that is that as physical cre creatures, we actually create life. Men and women are able to create life, right? Right. And through the emotional body and the spiritual body, you're able to actually create a sense of life as well. And I think that's how you step into the most self-actualized version of who you are. So I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, but that's how I've found a lot of courage. And it's been small steps. I just recently had a conversation with a man uh, about, I'm not sure if I should say this on air, but I'll go right ahead we spoke about masturbation and pornography and I'm very open talking about that because I gave up looking at pornography three years ago and it's completely evolved my perception of women and my ability to be aroused by the subtle beauty mm -hmm. and it's completely transformed my life and I don't speak outly about this on purpose but if men ask me about it I am happy to talk about it and and I do talk about this within my men's group but the point in bringing it up here is here's this man talking to me about this and he's an older man. He's about 60 and his wife is very ill and they haven't been able to make love for about a year now, which is what happens when a spouse gets very ill, you know? So we're talking about that and he goes, I'm just so impressed by how vulnerable you are and you're comfortable with it. And then I'm thinking in my mind going, this isn't vulnerable at all. This is normal <laughs> conversation, Just me but it's me. going back to, 
Yeah, it's going back to what we mentioned earlier. It was because, well, three years ago, I started talking about it with some people, and now I'm very comfortable talking about it. So there's definitely things that I'm not comfortable talking about, of course, but it's just slowly, you know, stepping into my own power mm -hmm. that I think has given me that courage. It's been a, a beautiful snowball effect. That's awesome. So it sounds like a, a good portion of this is, like, at least this is how it worked for me, and it sounds like that's similar to how it worked for you, and then just starting with one person and then expanding that circle as you go. So one, you know, oh, two, yeah, three, for sure. four, and then, and then you get to a point where, like for me, was I started with a close friend, and I shared it with two or three other close friends, and then it got to a point where now I'm sharing it with people like yourself who, or others who I, you know, I, I got to know recently, but like, like, and then strangers who I may have never met before or, or even get a chance to speak with, you know, when you present at different conferences or whatever, like they're, the room is filled. So you don't really get a chance to interact with every single one, but, mm -hmm. and you don't know a lot of the things that can um, come from you sharing that story, emotions yep. and stuff. So like for me, one of the biggest things actually was when I first started sharing my story was understanding that there will be things like um, judgment. I, th I think to some extent all human beings um, judge whether we want to admit it or not, but not – and I think with judgment, that definition evolves to, from one day um, to another. Like I, I think it's important to get, for me, to a point where I acknowledge something and I acknowledge that something may come off, you know, as judgmental. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that was kind of one of the biggest scares for me when I first started sharing my story was, okay, how are going, how are people going to view it? Which goes back to the point which you stated before this um, episode, and that was knowing your audience. Yep. Knowing absolutely. your audience, how do you deliver that message to them? How do you make right. it relatable? How do you craft that story? What questions do you ask throughout that story? Um, and so what I wanted to ask you was what were you afraid of the most when you were first sharing your story? So let me just back up just a second and just say that first, uh, what I'm not proposing people do mm -hmm. is go from zero to 150 right away. I'm, I'm the type of person that jumps into the deep end to learn things. I love that approach. But as far as vulnerability goes, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, walk into the middle of a high school <laughs> or, or your office or, you know, the world and share your story right away mm -hmm. because or on Facebook, by God, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> because that is such an easy place where people love, love, love to, to spout their projections on Facebook comments. Um, because yeah, that's going to hurt and, and you don't, you want it to be an empowering experience and not disempowering. So yeah, it's definitely drip by drip for sure. And then eventually you're going to have a sea of people that are with you that empower you that those voices of criticism are actually not powerful at all, you know, because you're mm -hmm. so overwhelmingly loved by the people that support you. So the other thing I wanted to mention though, is that oftentimes when you share a story that makes people feel uncomfortable in my experience, it's usually because it's a projection of their own shame. So for instance, this, you know, like I talked about earlier with masturbation and pornography, that's not a story that I share very often mm -hmm. because it's one that I've noticed makes a lot of men extremely uncomfortable and it's not in alignment with my current purpose and my work that I do. 
but uh, but so that's that's just one example though of of something where yeah I've I brought that up I've well, rather I have a friend who that is his work he's working with men's development mm-hmm. and so he's very out and very loud about his anti pornography message right which I agree with totally mm-hmm. but when he does it 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 gets a tremendous amount of men that just love to just call him you know names that are Discredit inappropriate. Him. Right, that, that discredited him and, and all of that stuff, and likely times it's a projection of their own shame because they have an issue with pornography and they don't want to admit. So I just wanted to bring that up, and that and that is that's very common when you get criticism. It's a projection of their own shame, right? Mm-hmm. If you start stepping up and you start talking about uh, how you've made a lot of money and you want someone else to make money, or you've you know gone from 400 pounds to 100 and whatever pounds, and you're got a six pack ab or whatever, like. People are going to love you for that story, but once you get to a point of where you're very successful, people are all of a sudden going to not like you anymore because it's projecting their own inability to actually follow that path. And that's and that's totally normal, and that's where we want to help them and be like, no, 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 I'm I'm here with you. I'm I'm I, I'm not judging you. I've been there, mm-hmm. right? I'll walk with you in that. You know, I'll help you on that journey. But that's difficult because emotional work is way harder than physical labor. Absolutely. I don't know how many men I've spoken to where they can chop wood and carry water all day. But when it comes to actually holding emotional space for their spouse when they're ill, not at all. They grow they grow numb and they hurt themselves and they go drinking or they take it out on something else. But that wasn't the question you asked. So let's go back to the question that you asked. Uh, and I need you to rephrase it. <laughs> the question was, what was, what were you afraid of when you first shared your story? Okay. And could you define which story? Because there's a lot. <laughs> Do you mean yeah. adoption here specifically, right? Yes. Yeah. So, what was I most afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. When I when I shared my story, what's interesting, Oleg, is that, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your, na- your name right, correct? It's Oleg, you got and not it. Oleg. Okay, yeah. Oleg. And so, my my greatest fear with it, uh, you know, as in a, it, it's really funny actually, because I've never been afraid to share my story as an adopted child until recently, which is so inverse, right? Huh. As a kid, I, I, I never was ashamed of it. My mother was very loving. I, I had pretty much an absent father that we can talk about you know, later on if we want. Um, and I, I wasn't afraid of it. In fact, there was a, so after I met you, I spoke to my mother. And when I say mother, I mean my adopted mother, right? That's that's right. the verbs that I use, and I do mm-hmm. know my birth mother, and I and I and I and I call her my birth mother. So, I spoke to my mother about it, and she and you know I said, I, was I ever you know because I'm, I'm curious. I'm like, am I you know I'm older now, and I'm starting to forget memories when I was a kid. And I'm like, was I ever nervous or afraid and didn't want to share? But and he said, no. In fact, you used to stand up for people, <laughs> you know. And I and she reminded me of when I was in eighth grade. I had a friend named Andrew who was adopted as well. And he didn't look like his mother. He was of a different ethnicity. Okay. And there was a point, and I went to a small private school, right? Small little Catholic school in New York. And there were 12 kids in our eighth grade class. So we all knew each other. We've been in the same grade since kindergarten. Yeah, it's very rare these days, right? K through 12, I had the same, basically 12 to 20 kids that fluctuated between. So I knew Andrew very well. And he uh, was also adopted. And it was not a source of power for him. And there was a point where something happened. And I don't really remember what. But 
everyone sort of did that thing where they looked at him and someone goes, well, you're adopted. And you kind of hear these kids snicker and laugh and he turns red from embarrassment. And I think we've all been in situations yeah. like that. So Andrew goes, well, so is Mark. And they all look at me and they start laughing. I was like, no, no, I really am. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am adopted. They're like, no, you're not. And I said, no, I, I, I really am, guys. I am adopted. I was like, what, what, so what, what's like, so what? Right. And it just diffused it right away. And, you know, and I went over to Andrew and I'm like, Hey man. And like <laughs> I lifted him up, you know, and, and we just continued on playing floor hockey, which is, I think what we were doing at the time. And, and, and moments like that happened a lot, right? I I've, I've met a lot of people that once they find out I'm adopted, uh, they, you know, they're adopted as well. And they feel comfortable sharing their story to kind of go back to what you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm a source of, trust for them where they're able to trust to share their story and they and they share their struggles it wasn't until i would say i started my working life and i grew to the age where my friends started having children and i you know thought of having children myself that i stopped being so vocal about my adoption because i used to talk about it a lot actually you know and I stopped talking about it as much or bringing it up even when it was relevant unless people asked simply because I noticed people started to treat me kind of like an alien kind of, I think I referenced this in my article yep. too. Like people would look at me and they'd be like, like almost like they want to poke me to be like, are you, you know, so, so, so are you human? Like, are you okay? You know, I, I, I honestly don't know what's going on in their mind. I love the I line kinda... you used in your story, which was, hi, I'm Mark. I'm adopted. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they want me to, they're like, oh, you didn't tell me that. And I'm like, well, it's not something that I like, you don't come across and be like, hi, I'm Mark. I'm white. I'm six foot two. I'm 190 pounds. Like, you don't, what the heck? You don't say that. So, so I'm not, I'm not, it's not, I'm not, I, it's not my identity. It's a, it's a beautiful part of my being mm -hmm. and it's, it's my superpower. It's, 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 it's done so much for me in my life. It's gotten me to go on this journey of self-introspection to self-actualization it's helped me love beyond blood like family to me has nothing to do with blood it has to do with the relationships and mm -hmm. how people treat me and i treat them and so it's allowed me to love people and treat them like family because well in my mind they are there's really no blood means nothing right yeah so anyhow I, i've stopped sharing it as much uh, simply because of that 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 annoyance where people just kind of get overly curious in a in a kind of like they're looking at me like I'm a gorilla kind of you know in a in a zoo kind of thing but um but no it still it still comes up sometimes and I shared recently and by recently I mean I think it was 2 years ago this uh, you might know him actually I think he's from Australia but he, this this man put out a beautiful video where he wanted to he didn't know who his birth mother was and he just uh, wanted yeah. to send out a message and just say hey i'm okay i just want you to know that i'm okay and i and that really resonated with me because that was my approach to finding my birth mother was i just wanted her to thank i i, I honestly wanted to thank her because I, I i wanted to to acknowledge that you didn't give me up you didn't abort me and i really respect you for doing that and uh, and and you gave me life. I really really appreciate that. And life is is, is such a beautiful gift. Well, so when I saw that video, I shared it, and I got all these messages from people. I didn't know you were adopted. It was the same thing over again. I was like, well, I, you know, <laughs> it's just so it's so silly. So what is your relationship with your birth mother at the moment, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm I earlier before this interview, Oleg, you had said to me. 
that there's often things that you talk to people where, you know, it gets uncomfortable. So I'm curious to see if we get to that point because uh-huh. that's going to be fascinating. We'll find out if we get there. <laughs> no, so I'm pretty open talking about I think everything. We'll discover if there's if, if I'm lying. <laughs> so uh, with my birth mother, what is the relationship right now? Uh, it's quite good. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we we uh, text often. We see each other. I mean, she lives in North Carolina. I'm in California now. I just moved from New York. And so I would say we, you know, we often like next week is Mother's Day and I, I often call her and thank her for, you know, giving me birth. Um, and we're on we're on close terms. You know, it's I think there was a level of awkwardness that I think most adopted children and probably adopted parents kind of have like this whole. Well, does this person play the parent role anymore? Right. You know, or like that kind of awkward thing, which I can speak about as well. But uh, there isn't any of that. It's more so of a, a level of kinship. Um, you know, I do think of her as family. Uh, she does have a beautiful adopted daughter that I think of as my sister. Mm. And so, and I keep, and actually I just texted her uh, the other day because she's an 11th grader now in high school and I used to teach 12th grade. And so, and I'm a poet like you. And so we, you know, I'm sharing my favorite poems and I think there's part of me too that's kind of like, well, I want to feed her the stuff that helped me become a better person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I want to be I that. I think we all want to do that. Yep. Right, exactly. Because, by God, that's the most beautiful time in our lives. That's where you're coming into your being, into your ego of who you are, right? Your body's developing, your mind's developing. You're like, mm-hmm. holy moly, look who I become. <laughs> and it's a really beautiful part. Uh, so, no, the relationship's pretty good. There were, I don't know if there were really any any true awkward awkward spots, but. It was uh, it was neat when we first met, and I could share that story real quick if you'd Absolutely. like to share it. Yep. So I was, I think I was 20. I was a sophomore year in college, so maybe I was 19 then. And I, it was before laptops, or laptops were super expensive, so we had these big desktops. Facebook wasn't out yet. The internet, and I, Google was around, but everyone was using this thing called Ask Jeeves. <laughs> I don't even know if you know what that is. I've and, never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Google, that's why Google's popular now, because it definitely <laughs> solved the problem. So I, there was, I've always wanted to meet my birth mother. It was an intrinsic thing inside that I just wanted to, just like that, Australian gentleman I just referenced earlier. I just wanted to let her know that hey, I'm I'm doing really well, mm-hmm. and I want to thank her or I want to thank you for for giving me birth. Uh, so let's uh, say I was 19, and there was a blog I believe I found, and I honestly don't even remember the name of it, and I wish I did, but it was a it it, it was at a time where you it was like forums, websites were forums, mm-hmm. and you could sort of post your story. And I quickly posted my story. And in my story, what makes it unique is that, so it was a closed adoption, which means that, uh, you know, no one knows who the birth parents are. But when I was 18, I was granted access to a safety or safety deposit box that had a letter in it from my birth mother. Wow. And which, which now I realize as I get older, that's, that's extremely rare. You know, I was very fortunate to have that, but it didn't, offer any aha moments it was i've always had oh like i've always had this intrinsic kind of and i i think it's an intuitive thing Mm -hmm. that i i i do think that i had conversations with my birth mother when i was in the womb and so like when i came out of the womb it was like understand i was very sad i'm sure like i i i know the i i definitely resonate with the whole like being abandoned thing and all of that the primal is adoptees call it or adoptive psychologists call it but 
uh, there was this level of like understanding, like, cause I felt she was sad and I was sad, but it was like, I know this is for the better, like, you know, see you later, but like, right. and like an understanding of it. So, uh, yeah. So when I was 18, I got this letter on this like Robin's egg blue parchment paper. And it was this letter where she had talked about how she was 14 or 15. She had given me up for adoption and I had known that story. My, my, my mother had told me that. And she had this beautiful poem on it, which I just thought was so beautiful. And funny enough, I find out later, I think what she did was literally write down the lyrics to like the opening song to Days of Our Lives, which is like a soap opera oh, or wow. yeah, soap opera, I think it's called. <laughs> and so it's really funny, you know, you're, but yeah. So anyhow, I, I mentioned that letter. I'm walking to the gym. My, my friend and I were trying out to be bodybuilders <laughs> and <laughs> my friend Mike and we're walking and I, this is back with flip phones and I get this call and I think her name was Robin I honestly don't even really remember Karen and she goes hey is this Mark and I said yes I think I found your birth mother and I, I stop and I'm like uh <laughs> run number okay okay oh my god what's going like okay what's going on this is interesting I I didn't even realize I put my number on that form which is an awful idea like why right. would I right? like, now I would never tell anyone to put their phone so uh, anyway, she goes, yeah, I, f I think I found your birth mother. I said, OK, well, well, you know, she said, I work for a nonprofit and my job is to help uh, adoptees find find their adopted parents. I said, OK, interesting. Do you want me to give you her number? I found her story on another blog that I think matches your story and I think it might be a match. OK, interesting. So anyhow uh she said do you want me to call her and find out and verify first i said yes please do that because i don't really want i, I really felt uncomfortable being the first person she calls back yes I, I think it's your birth mother and do you want to speak to her she wants to speak to you i said sure that's fine so we set up a call to talk in like an hour i walked back to my dorm room at the time and my my roommate tim gave me some space and i we talked for about two hours on the phone and it was really beautiful so uh, I then went to meet her. She had moved down from Buffalo, New York to North Carolina that following summer. I'd driven down. And I remember parking the car. And there was that that moment where it was like, oh, crap, this is really happening. <laughs> <laughs> like, no turning back now, kind of like. In theory, it was really cool to want to her. But it's like, A, I don't want her to be my mother. A, I or to try to parent me. You know, then B, it's like, I, I am scared, like, what the heck is this going to feel like, you know? Anyhow, we met each other at the door, and I think we both were kind of in this weird shock, like, what, you know, because we had heard all these stories, and I, and, and I, I, I know some people must have that story. I personally don't resonate with it, but mm -hmm. where they sort of, like, find themselves by meeting their birth parents, mm -hmm. which I think is beautiful, and I was wondering, like, oh, my goodness, am I going <laughs> to... I gonna feel that because I definitely did my whole life wonder like am I living my life on purpose like we mentioned earlier right so I go to meet her and she opens up the door and she goes you know she has like a southern accent now right and she's like hi and then I'm like <laughs> you know like hey nice nice to meet you and we like <laughs> hug and it was awkward <laughs> and we just stare at each other's eyes for a while and it was <laughs> and we laughed because it's you know, we both called out that it's a little weird. And because I was a grown man, right? I think she was expecting this little baby, you know. And this, last time she saw me, I was naked and weighed, you know, a few pounds. 
right? <laughs> so here I am, a grown man, and, and she's a grown Not woman. Not naked, just to clarify, right? Uh, we were both wearing clothes, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and 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 so we 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 hung out and we talked for for a while. And this is before she had adopted her first child. Uh, and and it was great. It was beautiful. And we looked. I looked at her her baby pictures and all that. And there were just so many. You know, I studied anthropology in college, right? So nature versus nurture always fascinated me. And I wanted to know, well, well, what things about me were made by you? Right. And she wants to know, like, well, what like, same thing. Right. And right. And found out, you know, not only looks. Right. Because uh, there's definitely facial structures that look very similar. So that was cool to be able to see that. Uh, but there were also other aspects that we both shared that for we're thinking biological reasons that mm. we share and like always being late. Uh <laughs> And just and just mannerisms too that I can't even really explain, but when you see us, we both do, and so that was fascinating to be able to see that. And uh, and we, I spent a few days. I got to meet her husband, and he's such such a loving man. He's not my birth father, um, and which is which is another conversation we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a beautiful man, and I got to learn how they met around the same age my wife and I met, and and. Uh, yeah, and and I got to hang out with them, and and then she and she wanted to like show me around town. It was really interesting, you know. She wanted to, her friend Gina, who she had been childhood friends with, who apparently was the only one who knew about me, but, you know, amongst her friends, she they kept it hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she wanted to show her to me, and so that was a little weird because like here I kind of felt like an experiment, but it was also <laughs> cool, and it was like all right, you know, with good intention. So I played along. And uh, and since then, yeah, we've kept in touch, and that was what now about twelve, thirteen years ago, fourteen wow. years ago actually, and and we've been, you know, we've been in touch ever since. And and there's definitely a strong difference in character, meaning, uh, and I think there there's definitely, I guess I should say, be more specific. There's def- definitely friction points, hmm. right, which uh, which are I think normal in any relationship, but they kind of become interesting in this relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So I, we don't have to speak about it, though we can. But I think the one main friction point has to do with religion. I've always been very invested in religion and spirituality and discovering uh, my own religion, my own definition of spirituality, my own understanding of God. Mm-hmm. And she is very uh, born again Christian, which I which I respect very much. But if you're familiar with that philosophy, it uh, it there tends to be moments of friction. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So those have been interesting, <laughs> you know, but outside of that, it's been it's been relatively smooth. It's amazing. Final thought for today's episode, and that is when the odds are completely against you. What are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? So when the odds are against me, what are the core fundamental principles? Yep. I think it always stems back to knowing that everything's going to be all right. I was very much influenced by a quote by Wayne Dyer. And he had said, how foolish are we to think that we are only taken care of for nine months? Mm. Think about that one a lot, because when moment, you know, when times get really hard, I, I, I reference that and I realize I mean, whether you want to take it on the spiritual level, like God's got my back, mm-hmm. or, or you just go into say, like, 
I've been through this before. And, and you know, uh, as an adopted child, first of all, if you're still breathing, congrats. That's awesome. Like, you deserve a pat on the back for that because it's really hard or it's really mm-hmm. easy rather, to to go the other way. It's really hard to step into the power of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I think about that and I think about all the other times that I've leaned on the edge and I've pushed the edge. I've, I've pushed myself and the the scary places that 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 the fear becomes like a trustworthy friend i recognize it and i know that i can trust on myself i can trust on god i can trust on the people i surround myself with mm-hmm. to help when times get tough interesting that's I, I i've lived i can't say by the same quote but one of the things that i've always um looked up to is ways to become friends with humility mm-hmm. and and things that are um you know i guess you could say out of the norm in today's world right and i, I think it's important because it, it cha- first it challenges your character and when that happens that's when you actually get closer to yourself some of the things you spoke of before that you know, was like yep. al- aligning your your being and this um body whatever it's called <laughs> Um, the skeleton with the inner part of who we are and really the only way you can do that is first by challenging whatever like makes your current makeup and that is asking those questions stepping out of that comfort zone getting out of that bubble so Mm -hmm. I, i i love that point i love the point you just made regarding that well mark thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience and your story and um, it was it was fascinating to hear it on my end, and I'm sure all of our listeners will appreciate it just as much. Well, thank you, Oleg. It's been an honor, and I just want to commend you again for doing this. Uh, I think by sharing our stories, we empower others to step into their own. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing here is not only needed, but there's no one else, I think, can do it in the way that you're doing it, and that is living your life on purpose. So that's awesome. It's amazing to watch it. you grow into this. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.